Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to a brand new year of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer, and I'm so glad to be back here with you. I had a very good break, and I hope you all did too, although I'm already feeling the intense chaos of January. It really hasn't been like a zen re-emerging into, the, into my work. It's been like a trial by fire um, or like a clown getting dunked into a tub of cold water. I hope your transition has been a bit more peaceful. But um, while I was gone, I was, of course, trying to relax, trying to hashtag unplug. I was spending a lot of time with family. I was cooking a lot. But I was also scheming, as befits someone who writes about wild women. I was scheming ways to make this podcast a bit better, a bit more exciting for you all. So I'm going to put some orders of business uh, at the end of this episode stick around for them. Uh, Let's just say if you're into, I don't know, cool portraits of creepy and or cool women, there may or may not be something like that in existence now. I do want to say one thing though before we get into today's story, which I hope you will love. I am starting a, let's call it like a series within the series that is Criminal Brats, a sub-series. And today's episode is the first of that series. I noticed when I put out episode 11, which was about the bandit queen Poulan Devi, that a lot of you really liked that episode. It seemed to resonate with a lot of people more than other episodes, and I think we all liked it for the same reason, because we could root for Poulan without the weird moral ambivalence that comes with a lot of true crime stories. So I wanted to capture that feeling of um, being able to root for someone with this new series. And so... I would like to occasionally tell you the story of broads who are not criminal, but crime-fighting. Crime-fighting broads. And today's is the first, because there are some badass women out there who are working in law and law enforcement, etc., who are not only incredible in themselves and doing incredible things in the world, but who have legitimately compelling, interesting stories that you would like want to listen to a podcast about. Women you would want to know about, trust me. Now, I know that we're here for the crime. This is a true crime podcast, so fear not. There will be plenty of crime in these stories. These women, after all, work in and around crime. So there's going to be, I mean, isn't it so weird that I'm about to say this? There's going to be murders. (laughs) But all in all, I think these stories will be deeply satisfying in a way that I think will be a lot of fun. So I'm not going to do them every other episode or anything like that, but occasionally I'm going to throw one in um, to spice things up, if you will. And then the only other order of business I want to put before we get to today's broad is that there is uh, just a little bit of a content warning. Um, there, there are some instances of sexual assault in this episode. It's uh, just a heavy subject. There's a lot of joy in this episode, but there's also a lot of heaviness. So just wanted to warn you, feel free to skip it if you just can't handle that right now. Um, without further ado, where are we traveling to today? Let's see. We are about to go to Texas. Ever heard of it? In the 80s. 
where a woman named Lois is asleep in bed and the telephone is just about to ring. telephone call jerked Lois Gibson awake. This wasn't the first time a telephone had woken her in the middle of the night, and it wouldn't be the last. She knew exactly what these sorts of late-night calls meant. There had been a crime, but not just any crime. In order for the Houston Police Department to call her at 3.30 in the morning, she knew the crime had been particularly bad. The man on the other end of the line was Lieutenant Charles McClelland, and he told Lois that she needed to come into the station immediately to speak to a witness. The witness in question was a nine-year-old girl named Annie, and she had just lived through the rape and murder of her mother, as well as her own assault. Now, even though it was 3.30 in the morning and Annie was exhausted and traumatized, they needed to keep her awake long enough to get a description of the murderer from her, and that's where Lois came in. Lois scrambled out of bed and dressed with particular care. She always put thought into her outfits during times like these, especially when she was dealing with children. She didn't want to look like a cop. She wanted to look like a mother. She was a mother, after all. Her own nine-year-old daughter was sleeping in the next room. So Lois put on soft clothes made of knit jersey and embroidered with a pattern that looked like a burst of sunlight. She brought snacks, too, a juice box and an apple. She knew that Annie would be completely worn out. When Lois got to her office, she told the officers that she was ready to see the witness. A few minutes later, they brought Annie through the door. She was a beautiful little black girl, and she was very, very calm. Lois thought to herself that Annie carried herself like a little queen, like a tiny ruler from some faraway country who had seen war and savagery and had come out the other side, shaken but unbroken. Annie, said Lois, I am so glad you came down to see me this morning. Your blouse is so pretty. Thank you, said Annie. Now I want you to understand that we are going to draw a picture of the bad man who hurt you, said Lois, but it's going to be very easy. Do you know why? Annie shook her head. Because little girls like you see and remember things so much better than grown-ups do. Lois began asking Annie questions, gently, like, what kind of hair did he have, and sketching Annie's answers as fast as possible, without looking like she was drawing fast. She didn't want to stress Annie out. After a while, Lois offered Annie the juice box, and the girl took it gratefully. A bit later, Lois offered her the apple, but Annie shook her head and pointed to her mouth. One of her bottom teeth had been knocked loose by her mother's killer. In that moment, Lois was so overcome with grief and rage at what this precious girl had just been through that she could barely see. She let the feeling wash over her and then shook it off. It wasn't time for all that emotion, not yet. She had work to do. Someone evil was roaming the streets of Houston, and she was determined to catch him. I want to paint you a picture
Lois Gibson had an idyllic childhood, far away from thoughts of horror and murder and loosened teeth. She was born in rural Missouri on February 25, 1950, the second of five children, and when her mother went into labor with Lois, she went to the hospital in a horse and carriage. Her family then moved to Kansas City, where Lois flew down snowy hills on a sled built by her father, twirled a baton in the marching band, played with her sisters, and lived in an ever-expanding house, a house where her dad, a natural carpenter, was always wrenching something down and hammering up something better in its place. Amid all this joy, there was one thing that Lois liked to do better than anything else. She loved to draw. Here's Lois talking about her childhood passion. I always wanted to draw. I drew before I could walk. I would crawl around and get crayons. We would go to visit people, and they also had children. And I knew nobody liked to draw like me, so I would crawl around. And sure enough, there'd be piles of crayons laying around unused, and it'd be like near a color book. And then we'd go back and visit, and they go, Look what your little girl did. She completely, I would use up the, the entire, I'd color the whole color book, the poor little stupid kids that had did use those. I used them. I mean, I'd rub the crayons down to the nub, but they go, she filled the entire color book. Did you notice? And I kind of thought, I felt bad. I went, oh man, I stole the crayons. And then I just kind of run away. But yeah, I drew. And then when I was in kindergarten, I was waiting to be at the easel. They had an easel where you could use paints, but they only let one person at a time go. And they did it by alphabet. And I was an H. And I would look at the other kids paint, paint, and they would always mess it up. There were some bad. And I would act like a man watching a football game when they're making bad moves. I go, no, no, oh, don't. And finally, the teacher noticed this, and she said, do you want to go out of turn? And I go, what does out of turn mean? She goes, okay, well, you want to go right now? I go, yeah. Now, growing up in a family of five means that when it comes time to pay for college, chances are you're on your own. Lois had always had a very practical streak, and so once she graduated from high school, she began looking for ways to pay for college herself. The entry-level jobs in Kansas City were okay, but the entry-level jobs in Los Angeles were a lot better. And so she decided to move to the City of Angels and work for a while, then come back to Kansas with enough cash to put her through at least the first few years of school. In L.A., she soon found work at an insurance company, but a guy she was dating at the time told her that she should try to pick up a side hustle in the modeling world. Lois scoffed at him at first. Her? Model? But what Lois hadn't really realized growing up in Kansas City was that she'd grown up to be extraordinarily pretty. She was only 5'5", hardly model height, but she showed up at an agency anyway and was surprised to find that not only would people definitely hire her to model, but that she could get $100 an hour for the work. So she began to pick up modeling gigs on the side wherever she could. She soon found that the life of a part-time model was not only lucrative, but a lot of fun. Yeah, it bored her sometimes, and she definitely didn't want to stake her entire career on something as fleeting as youthful good looks, but she liked the attention, and people loved to hire her. 
Her resume grew and grew. She posed for Playboy, she worked as a go-go girl on a TV show called The Real Dawn Steele Show, and she dated a member of the Beverly Hillbillies. Life was a joyous, busy blur. She was so busy, in fact, that she was almost never in her apartment. Until one evening, when she found herself at home with a rare, free night ahead of her, in which she had nothing to do but relax. As she padded around her apartment, she heard a knock at the door. Who is it? she asked. A male voice replied, Oh, hi. You don't know me, but my name is Jim Hutchinson. I live right down the hall, and I've seen you come and go, and I thought, hey, we're neighbors. Why don't we get acquainted? Lewis didn't recognize his name, but what she knew was that the people in her building, in general, were nice. People everywhere were pretty much nice, as far as Lois had seen. She'd been raised to see the best in people, and she'd grown up believing that humans were trustworthy. Even in bustling, superficial L.A., she'd had no reason not to believe that most people were, at their core, kind and good. And so she opened the door. Since she was about to die, Lois thought, she might as well study her killer's face. The man who'd called himself Jim Hutchinson had burst through the door like a wild dog as soon as she opened it. In an instant, his hands were around her throat. He was kicking the door shut, pushing her backwards onto the sofa, and ripping off her jeans so violently that she thought he might actually rip off her leg. As he assaulted her, he choked her so that she would black out and come to and black out again. At first, she couldn't think of anything but getting air, but after a few blackouts, she realized that he was smiling at her. He was enjoying himself. He was doing this on purpose, doing this for fun. It was after the fourth blackout that Lois felt sure she was going to die, and so she began appraising the man with something like detachment. She thought to herself that she was about to go to heaven, and that this man, whenever he died, would be going straight to hell. She looked at his pasty complexion, his goatee, his dark eyebrows, his pitiful fury. He seemed to sense, then, that she was judging him, and so he began shaking her by the neck. Say, I love you, he screamed. She choked out the words while his hands never left her throat. But he didn't kill her. When he was done, he stood up, walked towards the door, and then stopped. We'll have to date again, he said, and reached into his pocket to pull out a little jeweled pillbox, a gift for her, a reminder of their time together, He'd been in her apartment for 25 minutes, and her life would never be the same again. After the door shut behind him, Lois sprinted to the bathroom to look into the mirror. She almost fainted when she saw that the whites of her eyes had turned completely red. The blood vessels in her eyes had burst from the choking. She stumbled into the shower and scrubbed her entire body with vinegar, and then shampoo, and then soap, scrubbing and scrubbing until her skin almost started bleeding. For the next two weeks, 
She did nothing but sleep for long stretches and live off the tiny bit of food that was left in her apartment. One egg, one piece of bacon, one stalk of celery, and a little bit of flour. She cut the bacon into eight small pieces and fried one piece in flour every day, waiting for the blood to drain out of her eyes. When she finally reemerged into the world, she was a different person. When someone literally tortured me almost to death as a matter of recreational activity for himself. In other words, his idea of having a good time was killing someone and watching it happen. And it happened to be me that he found at that time. I'm sure he's done this to other, you know, had done this to other people. It was so obscenely cruel. It was crueler than anything I had ever imagined. I never imagined that there were people that rotten, that bad, that evil, that they wanted to kill for fun. And so it left me feeling how unjust and complete, I felt bro- I was broken. I was trying to kill myself. Forget it. I, I was suicidal. And uh, because I, I, the number one reason I was suicidal is I, I thought I can't get justice because I was too embarrassed to tell police and because police i pictured it being a man and i pictured myself having to drive to downtown los angeles and tell some man in a uniform what happened that was impossible i couldn't do that i couldn't even tell myself i couldn't have told a female that was sympathetic in a clinical setting i could there's no way so i couldn't get justice because i couldn't tell the cops one day As she was driving home in her car, she had the strangest sensation. It was like something or someone had taken over her steering wheel. Her car began driving into an unfamiliar neighborhood, and she couldn't stop it. She didn't know why she was driving that way. She started crying, confused and afraid at what was happening to her. And then, at the top of the hill, the car stopped, and she saw the thing she feared the most her rapist's face. He was walking out of an apartment building toward her. And before I could open my mouth and scream, I noticed he was surrounded by a guy in front of him and behind him. And as they walked together, I noticed that they were Los Angeles police officers. And then as they got sideways, I realized his hands were cuffed behind his back. And this is where the good part comes. They were at the top of some stairs, wooden stairs, two-story, real high stairs, and they needed to go down the stairs. And he started fighting them with everything he had, his head, head, even though his hands were pinned behind his back with handcuffs, he used his shoulders and his head and his feet, his legs, he was trying to kick. And so in order for them to not fall down the stairs altogether and break arms and legs, they had to beat the bejesus out of them. And that's why I got to watch them be guy. (laughs) I was like, oh, that that must hurt. Ow. Ooh. Oh, goody. So nobody gets that in this world almost to see justice, to witness it, to go drive up and see it happen right before my eyes. It was like 
a Volkswagen went off my back. It was like I was being crushed. And all of a sudden I was, oh, I could live. I went, oh, I can live now. I can finish living because I didn't want to live before. God. So that, that, right, that scene, it made me believe there was a God. Because you can't get inside my mind, but trust me, I did not mean to go up. Something supernatural took the steering wheel and had me go up a hill just in time to see him get arrested. So I know there's a God. And the dang weirdest thing is after that, I knew I wouldn't mind paying taxes. following her attack, Lois began to think about leaving Los Angeles. She was growing tired of the men she'd been dating in LA, tired of their ego and their superficiality. One of them flattered himself that he was knowledgeable about art, and after an argument about who the best artist in the world was, he ended up arrogantly daring her to copy a painting by the Dutch artist Johannes Vermeer. She copied it flawlessly, listening to the radio and totally blissing out during the painting process. In fact, her reproduction was so good that her boyfriend didn't believe she'd painted it and forced her to paint a second version right in front of him. When she repeated the whole process and again did it flawlessly, he tried to take the painting from her, perhaps realizing that he could get thousands of dollars for such a well-forged Vermeer. That was the last straw. Lois took the painting, left the man, and moved to Texas. Those blissful hours spent channeling Vermeer had reminded Lois of her love of painting. She'd also been thinking about something that had flashed across her mind during her attack, that she didn't want to die without going to college. It was time to change that. So she moved into the Dallas suburb of Arlington and started taking classes at the University of Texas at Arlington. She also picked up a job painting live portraits at Six Flags, which was excellent training in painting faces fast. When she realized that she needed more advanced art classes, she transferred to the University of Texas at Austin and finished her degree there. And then she made the startling decision to enroll in dental school in San Antonio, thinking she'd become a maxillofacial prosthesis technician, someone who makes new artificial facial parts for patients who've lost a nose or an ear or an eye. She didn't realize it at the time, just how valuable this knowledge would be later in life, this intricate knowledge that she was gaining about the human face, about jawbones and teeth structures and the muscles that hold the whole thing together. She just studied, and to make some extra money, she set up an easel on a nearby riverwalk and offered to draw portraits for tourists and other passersby. What started out as a side hustle quickly became so lucrative that she eventually dropped out of dental school, moved to Houston, and began doing portraits full-time. She was doing all this moving, and moving, and changing jobs, and moving again, because, in truth, she was in denial. She was on the run, trying to ignore what had happened to her in Los Angeles, trying to grit her teeth and just muscle her way through it, sometimes literally, like when she got a repetitive motion injury in her neck from drawing and ignored her doctor's orders to rest. The injury was clearly due to the repeated motion of looking at a subject and then looking back at her drawing paper, but on a metaphorical, psychological, or even spiritual level, 
It was uncomfortably close to her last injury, the one that had happened when someone put his hands around her neck and tried to end her life. But while Lois was pretending that everything was fine, something truly good came into her life. That something was a gorgeous blonde man, muscular, tan, and painfully shy, named Sid Gibson. He sat for a portrait and gave her his number, and after a few awkward dates during which she found out that he hated restaurants, a relationship bloomed. Before too long, Lois knew that this man wasn't like the men of her past who'd broken her heart or disillusioned her with their shallow ways or tried to steal her work. This man was the one. Still, she kept her darkest emotions hidden deep inside from everyone in her life, until one night. That night, she was watching TV with a friend when the newscaster announced that there had been a violent crime. A man had burst into a dance class full of 11- and 12-year-old girls. He'd pulled out a gun, and he'd raped the dance teacher at gunpoint, right in front of her students. Lois couldn't bear it. It was like a dam cracked open inside of her, and a river of rage began flooding her. Her mind filled with visions of running over the rapist in her car. She screamed at the television, screamed at the unfairness of it all, at the fact that this man had gotten away with it, at the unbearable suspicion that he would get away with it forever. The newscaster was describing the attacker in the most generic terms possible. Male, 5'10", brown hair, brown eyes. That could describe half the men in Houston, she thought. And suddenly, it hit her. Her life hadn't been a series of random events. She wasn't doomed to wander forever. All of it, the crayons in kindergarten, the move to L.A., the assault, the Vermeer painting the dental school, the fidgety tourists, even the blinding rage that simmered inside of her, all of it was adding up to something. She turned to her friend. I could sketch that guy, she said. Lois felt like she'd seen the rest of her life laid out in front of her in one blinding flash, there were still a number of barriers in her way. Forget the rapist, forget all the other criminals out there. The real barrier was a lot more banal. Bureaucracy. Specifically, the bureaucracy of cops. Convincing the Houston Police Department to let an unknown woman come in, sit down, and start drawing murderers with pastels was no easy task. First, Lois practiced. She would have Sid and her friends describe strangers to her, and she'd draw the stranger's portraits until Sid or the friend said, Yep, that's him. By this time, she and Sid had decided to get married, and then they had their first child, and so soon enough she was juggling wifehood, motherhood, and her portrait drawing business with all of this extra sketch practice. 
When she wasn't sketching, she was calling the Houston Police Department over and over, trying to convince a bunch of surly detectives to let her come in and show them her skills. She told them that she'd do it for free, she'd bring all the supplies, it would be painless, and it would be worth it. I'll transfer you to homicide, the robbery department would say. I'll transfer you to sex crimes, the homicide department would say. Though it felt like she was knocking her head against a brick wall, she kept calling and calling and calling, imagining how good it would feel to catch the killers and rapists roaming free out there, imagining the joy that her fellow victims would feel when it happened, if only someone would just call her back. Eventually, she got a tiny break. One lieutenant let her come in to do a test run in which someone described to her an inmate who was already in jail. That led to her first real case, and then another case. But Lois was realizing that interviewing a shaken witness was a lot more complicated than interviewing her husband. And also, she just wasn't happy with the sketches she was producing on the spot. After her third assignment, in which she interviewed a shaken young man who'd witnessed a murder, and in which she produced a sketch that she thought was awful, she felt like an absolute failure. Those feelings remained with her for the next couple of days, until one afternoon the phone rang. One of the detectives was on the other line, saying, You did it, girl! The sketch had worked. The guy was caught. With that, Lois felt something shift within her. She felt like... She suddenly wasn't a victim anymore. As she says in her autobiography, In some spiritual, visceral, emotional way, I had reached back in time and put my arms around that younger, terrified Lois. I was telling her that everything was, indeed, going to be all right, that nothing that had happened to her had been in vain. She also couldn't wait to sketch the next bad guy. Still, progress was slow, really slow. Sometimes she was paid out of the office coffee fund. Sometimes people laughed at her or didn't call her. But Lois eventually convinced them to take her on as a contractor, which then enabled her to get something really impressive on her resume. She took a few weeks off work and studied at a little thing called the FBI Police Composite Artist Training Course at the National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Still, none of this made her job any easier. If anything, life was only getting more complicated. Even though one out of every three of her drawings helped catch a perpetrator, the Houston Police Department owed her $11,350 by the end of 1988. Right before Christmas that year, she looked into her rearview mirror and saw police lights flashing behind her. She was getting pulled over for speeding. When the young policeman came up to her window and asked for her license, she began sobbing. You owe me $11,350, she told him, waving one of her sketches in his face. She didn't get a ticket that year, but she didn't get paid either. It wasn't until the next year that she finally became a full-time employee of the Houston Police Department at age 39. It felt real for her when, one day, the police captain put his arm around her shoulders and yelled at any listening cops, Miss Gibson has the right to ask any detective anything she wants about any case they're working. She's well worth the time and trouble, understand? It was still a man's world, rough, gruff, and bloody, but she was officially on the inside.
any cop knows, there are certain criminals who show clear patterns of escalation. These are the really scary ones, the ones you have to catch before they kidnap another child or kill another co-ed or terrorize another small town. There's an extra level of urgency to these cases because you know that the longer this criminal walks free, the more likely it is that someone else will die. That urgency is only doubled when you're hunting not for one criminal, but for two. Ever the hustler, Lois had worked out a deal with the police department in Wichita, Kansas, where they would buy her flights to Kansas so that she could see her family and bring her children to see their grandparents. Yes, she had two kids by that point, a boy and a girl. In exchange for the price of a ticket, she'd work on a case or two while she was out there. One autumn day in the late 80s, the Wichita police called her, wondering if she could get there on the next flight. Wichita was haunted, traumatized by a terrifying duo, two rapists who worked together, clearly edging each other on, attacking women as they walked home from work or stepped outside to check the mail. The two men had a signature move. They liked to beat their victims over the head with a claw hammer, and their bloodlust was clearly escalating. While attacking one of their most recent victims, they'd pulled out 18 inches of her intestines and left her for dead. These horrible men hadn't banked on the almost supernatural resiliency of women, though. They kept leaving women for dead, the women kept on living, and these living women remembered their faces. Lois got to Kansas as fast as she could. She knew how to talk to women like these, traumatized women who didn't want to be hugged, who didn't want to be told that everything would be okay, who didn't really want to talk at all. Empathy was important. Directness was important. Other people were most likely treating their attack like it was a forbidden topic, but Lois knew that there was no point in tiptoeing around the fact that a crime had occurred. As she knew from experience, the crime was all these girls were thinking about. She would say things aloud that other people didn't even think they were supposed to think, like, you almost died. And then she'd say, but you lived. Isn't that wonderful? She wasn't afraid to crack jokes or bring snacks to make the experience a bit more enjoyable. She even thought obsessively about the practical things she could do with the room to ease their tension, like giving them a comfortable chair, making sure tissues and water were within reach, even putting a phone by their chair so that the witnesses didn't feel like they were trapped. In Wichita, Lois met her first witness, Sarah. Sarah was refusing to talk to the cops because Sarah completely denied that she'd been attacked at all, even though she'd been hospitalized and hit in the head with a claw hammer and detectives found obvious signs of struggle at her house. As soon as Lois walked across the room, she recognized something of herself in Sarah, who was frowning at her, arms across her chest, head down, hair unbrushed, eyes hollow. Lois sat down, quietly, at a respectful distance, and set up her sketching materials, saying softly, The reason I do all this work is that I was attacked in my home by a guy who tried to kill me for fun. At that, Sarah visibly relaxed, and tears filled her eyes. She was there just to describe the attackers, but instead she began to talk, telling every detail of her attack, what the men did to her, and how her beloved dogs had rushed into the kitchen, snarling and leaping at the rapists, driving them away and likely saving her life. Another victim, Betsy, had been run off the road by the two men as she drove home from work, and they'd attacked her so badly that she was in a coma for two days. 
When she recovered, the cops took her to Lois. At this point in her career, Lois had noticed that when a witness had to describe more than one perpetrator, they would often start by describing the one who scared them the least. Betsy described one of the men and approved Lois's drawing and then began to describe the other one, the scarier one. As she tried to explain what he looked like, Lois glanced up from her easel and saw that Betsy's face was starting to swell up. She was covered in hives, her face growing so red and distended that soon she looked almost unrecognizable. Lois had never seen such a clear expression of the body's terror. She stopped drawing and told Betsy something she knew to be true, that, yes, these men were some of the sickest guys she'd ever heard of, but the more horrible they were, the more likely it was that they would be caught. When Lois's sketches were run on local television, the two men, Robert Wayne Lampert and Scott Allen Hain, recognized their faces on the evening news and took off for Tulsa, Oklahoma, where, as the cops feared they would, they escalated to murder, burning two young people alive in the trunk of a car. They were captured three days later by Tulsa police, and the next morning, a traveling salesman from Wichita recognized their mugshots from Lois's sketches that he'd seen back in Kansas and called Wichita detectives. My mom called me, and she said, they got those boys. And I said, what boys? She, <laughs> she goes, because she, I had done the sketch, and I thought, oh, they're never going to catch them. I just didn't know. I was real connected. I was down in Houston, and here I did the sketches in, Can in Kansas. I go, what boys, Mom? And she goes, those boys that raped all these girls. And I go, you're kidding. She goes, no. After. They went down to Tulsa and they took two people and put them in the trunk of a car and burned them alive. And I went, oh my gosh, that's their style because they were sickos. And that's when she said that they burned some people alive. I went, that's when I knew she was right. It was my dingy mama. But she was, I said, mama, that is them because they're horrible. But they got, they got caught and they asked me, the TV station said, why don't you go down to the local station and put a little earpiece in and we'll interview you. So my mom and dad have since passed, but they got to see me on TV and they go, and now we're going to Houston to the hero, the one that helped solve Lois Gibson. And I ran my mouth with the earpiece in and all that. But my mom and dad got to see that and I was called a hero. On TV, Lois turned directly to the camera and addressed the girls that she'd interviewed. I know you suffered through it, girls, she said, but it worked. Tomorrow, you can get up and watch a sunrise and know that those two will never see a sunrise or sunset for the rest of their lives. Again, Lois's work made the news. One of her most famous cases was the case of Baby Grace. In 2007, a tiny corpse was discovered in Galveston Bay, too battered and decomposed to identify. Using facial reconstruction, Lois drew a portrait of what the little two-year-old girl might have looked like in life, and when the sketch was released to the public, the girl's grandmother recognized it. 
the girl who'd been known only as Baby Grace was really Riley Ann Sawyers, and she'd been killed by her mother and stepfather. Not every case that Lois worked on was full of such horror. As her reputation spread, people would come to her with all sorts of odd requests, like a sister who'd been separated from her two brothers when they were all kids and who wanted Lois to do an age progression so that she could find them again. This woman handed Lois a photo of a chubby newborn and a cute toddler and asked her to estimate what they'd look like as grown men. Lois took on the challenge, and the sister was able to get her portraits featured on the show Unsolved Mysteries. And minutes after the sketches were aired, an aunt was calling into the show, and soon enough, the siblings were reunited. Occasionally, Lois got historical. Remember the iconic Life magazine photo of the sailor kissing a nurse in Times Square the day World War II ended? Many men have claimed to be that sailor, but Lois believes that she has verified the claims of one of them, Glenn McDuffie, by measuring his ears, facial bones, hairline, wrist, knuckles, and hand, and comparing them to the original photo. She's also authenticated old photos of Billy the Kid and Jesse James by comparing the photos to other known pictures of the two, a move that has admittedly drawn a bit of controversy in Wild West historical circles. And, in more current news, she worked with Stormy Daniels last year on a sketch of a man who allegedly threatened Daniels to keep quiet about all things Donald Trump. And biggest of all, in 2016, Lois was inducted into the Guinness Book of World Records for most criminals positively identified due to the composites of one artist. The entry read, Between June 1982 and May 2016, 751 criminals have been positively identified and brought to justice in Texas, USA, thanks to the detailed composites drawn by forensic artist Lois Gibson. Today, when Lois looks at her field, the field she worked so hard to break into, she feels conflicting emotions. On the one hand, forensic art is... Well, it's a dying art. There are less than 25 artists doing this full-time today compared to the thousands and thousands of law enforcement agencies. On the other hand, something exciting is coming down the pipeline. There's something happening in our future that I'm so glad I lived to see this. Here's the new thing that I believe will explode the need for our profession. They just now have started perfecting all these different facial identification systems and computers, computerized facial ID. And you know you've seen it like on Google. It can recognize Uncle Fred's picture or other people. And then, yeah, and people are making better and better. So now they just started taking sketches that we do and putting them and comparing them to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of photographs of known suspects. And they're they're identifying from sketches. Sketches are being used in computers like DNA profiles used to be, and like fingerprints. Isn't this exciting? bottom tooth. Lois continued to draw. When she finished, Annie looked at the sketch of her attacker for a long moment and then cried, 
He looks too much like a girl. It took Lois a minute to figure out what she meant. Here's the thing about composite drawings and the criminals behind them. When these men and women are walking down the street, they often look frighteningly ordinary. They don't walk around town with cold sociopath eyes and faces distorted by rage. They walk around town in baseball caps and glasses, buying milk and nodding to the mailman. It's not until the moment of violence that something comes over their faces, that look of evil, that twisted fury. Most of us will never see that look, thank God. But Lois had. She knew exactly what it looked like when an ordinary face morphed into something horrible. But that look of rage isn't helpful for a composite sketch. After all, the hope with the sketch is that some boss or grandma or ex-girlfriend will see it, will recognize their employee or granddaughter or weird ex, and turn them in. Lois had drawn Annie's attacker with a neutral expression, as was typical, but Annie had seen him with the expression of a killer. When Annie said that the sketch looked too much like a girl, she was saying that it didn't look scary enough. It didn't look monstrous enough. Lois knew that, but she also knew the drawing would have to stand as is. When she took the sketch down to the homicide investigator, he greeted her awkwardly. Lois, I have to tell you, I don't know if I'm going to use the sketch, he said. I asked Annie about it, and she said the sketch wasn't any good. She said it looked too much like a girl. Lois was too exhausted to explain everything she knew about how a human face can morph into a monstrous one. She'd been up since 3.30 in the morning, and anyway, she was tired of justifying her skill to people. She just responded sharply, Use the sketch. Trust me. Then she went home to sleep. 24 hours later, police arrested 22-year-old Jeff Williams, the killer. As soon as her sketch had been released to the public, people had started calling in his name. Lois watched Jeff being led away in handcuffs on TV. Like she'd done so many years before, when she heard about the attack on the dance teacher, she yelled at the screen, but this time she was yelling not in despair, but in triumph. How do you like it? She cried at the man in handcuffs. Then, her work done, for the moment, she burst into tears. all folks thank you so much for listening isn't lois awesome don't you want to be her friend honestly um if you are an artist or have that sort of affinity or skill you you might want to look into her um uh excuse me her course she teaches regular i think five-day courses on forensic art you can find the info at loisgibson.com all right back to those orders of business that i mentioned in the intro i am 
I have two things to tell you about. The first is that I'm launching a little mini tiny collection of Criminal Broads merch. This is not the Criminal Broads logo on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, though between me and you, I would love to make that happen someday. But um, these are going to be posters uh, or a little like not posters, like beautiful prints that you can frame of three of the women that we've talked about on this podcast. And I'll probably be adding more as the year goes on. These women are serial killer Kate Bender from episode two. Love her. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Our girl Lizzie Borden from episode 10, who needs no introduction. And everyone's favorite, Poulan Devi from episode 11. These are illustrated by Dame Darcy, who did the illustrations for my book, Lady Killers. She is this incredible goth artist who, her work is just amazing. And each poster, they're not posters, they're like prints. Each print has a quote from the woman on it in Dame Darcy's handwriting. They're gorgeous and evocative. And if you want to check them out, go to criminalbroads.com slash merch. M-E-R-C-H to get the scoop on those. The second thing that's going to blow your mind, (sighs) into every podcaster's life, a little Patreon must fall, right? Like every podcast you listen to probably has a Patreon account and now Criminal Broads is joining the herd like a total lemming. Why? Because this is a one-woman operation, very DIY, and I have big plans for it, but... I need a little something to make a lot of those plans um, possible. Like the first thing I want to do or the big thing I want to do in 2019 is hire an audio engineer. Um, so anyway, I I have a whole spiel that you can check out if you go to patreon.com slash criminal broads. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash criminal broads. Um, but check it out. And then if you do end up deciding to become a Patreon person, I'm going to be posting like extra bits and behind the scenes things on there, including the full interview with, uh, Lois that I did. It's about an hour interview of me and her talking. So I'm going to post that there. So, I mean, honestly, feel no pressure and, um, it's just there if you feel like it. I really appreciate you being here. I always say it, but it's just like so cool to have people listening to this and got so many nice reviews over the holidays. So thank you all so much. And let's end with another quote from Lois. Actually, I have a really cute one I've been saving for you. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. When I was eight years old, I, I literally had this urge to draw faces my whole life. And I asked the teacher, I said, I would ask different teachers, two different teachers, can I have a job where I just draw faces? They said, no, you can't make steady money with that. You have to go on commissions. And when you finish the portrait, then there's no more money till you get a new commission. And if the economy's bad, you just like, have you heard that? Then they told me, they said, have you heard the term starving artist? And I was so upset. I prayed in class one day. I said, Heavenly Father, could I please have a job where I just draw faces all day? And then I teared up. And I thought, this is embarrassing. And I put my sleeve up there to catch the water coming out of my eyes. So look at this. I got a job where I draw faces all day. (laughs) But God didn't say it was going to be like sleaze bags. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear.
guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.